This is the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, created by the team of Becker's Healthcare, a multimedia company devoted to the people who power U.S. healthcare. Four new 15-minute episodes are released daily, containing industry news, analysis, and thought leadership from powerful healthcare decision makers. Support our show by leaving it a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms you use. It's a chance to tell us what you like about the show and act on your feedback. Thanks for listening. Now here's the episode. This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Thrill, thrilled today to be joined by a uh, brilliant journalist, uh, Jacob Emerson, who talks to us regularly about payer trends and issues. I'm going to ask Jacob to take it away and tell us what are the couple stories that he's watching currently. Jacob, let me turn it to you. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Um, so I thought two of the bigger stories we could talk about today is how contract negotiations are going between some some of the country's largest health systems and Medicare Advantage carriers as we start off the year and where we're seeing some tensions in terms of contract breaks this month. And the other thing I thought we could talk about, especially uh, with the presidential election ahead of us this year, is Medicaid work requirements. We've, we've seen this idea floated on the federal level last year, and we've got a handful of states that are pursuing this this, um, this year. So um, an interesting topic to watch. hundred percent. And when you talk about Medicaid work requirements, is there really a purpose other than directionally or trying to signal something? Because at the end of the day, somebody's poor, we want them on Medicaid, we prefer them to try and work, or if they do work or don't work, we still want them to have their health care coverage, don't we? I mean, it seems like it's just a politicized issue. Is there really a purpose in it besides the politics of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. Um, I think it probably depends on on the state you're looking at and what exactly they're proposing. Some are a little bit more strict than others in terms of what they require. Some want, you know, very strict work requirements versus um, proof of just volunteering for a certain amount of hours a week. So it really depends on the state. Um, I know at the federal level last year, Medicaid work requirements were pitched as part of a debt ceiling deal um, between former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Biden. That did obviously did not go through as part of the final deal, but at the time, the CBO had estimated that that proposal uh, would result in an estimated 600,000 people nationwide losing their Medicaid coverage, um, but it would save the federal government uh, over $100 billion over a 10-year period. Though they did conclude that it would have a negligible effect on employment status or hours worked by people who are subject to the requirements. So uh, what we've heard from, from experts and from critics of, of policies like this is um, that it's a very difficult lift for state Medicaid agencies to sift through uh, people's, people's work and prove that they, are, um, that they are working while they're enrolled in the Medicaid program. Um, but on top of that, it just creates an extra challenge for uh, Medicaid members in each state um, to, to it, it adds extra burden to, to receive health coverage. And as we know, through Medicaid redeterminations, any extra roadblocks or, or administrative or uh, policy challenges, um, it affects people. Uh, it affects a lot of people. Not everyone knows um, or is you know aware of a lot of these policy changes with Medicaid. And so anytime you introduce, um, you know, uh, roadblocks to accessing that that care it it um it does affect a lot of people so it's it's an interesting policy to watch but like i said we've got about five states pursuing this matter this year 
But, but it does seem to your point to have tremendous administrative headaches to states in a t- period of time when everybody's overwhelmed with administrative requirements. So I won't fix right. it too much on that. Let me get let me get back to you on the two main stories you were you were following, and and let me let you go ahead on those. Thank you. Yeah. So I thought we could just touch base on on an issue that you and I have talked about in depth um, the last year or so in terms of the Medicare Advantage program and um, contracting with hospitals and health systems. Uh, we've done a lot of reporting on this topic and we really saw last year a lot of systems and a lot of hospital executives become a lot more candid with their critiques of the Medicare Advantage program. Some systems, some hospitals um, ended some or all of their contracts with MA carriers. Um, but as we start this new year, you know, naturally contracts between health systems and payers um, oftentimes end at the end of a year. And so naturally we were going to see a lot of contract breaks as we began 2024. But just uh, a few of those breaks are, are notable because of how many people they affect. And so just to mention three in terms of Medicare Advantage negotiations that are going on right now with some of the biggest health systems. Um, Christiana Care, largest health system in Delaware, has dropped Humana Medicare Advantage. Um, again, all these are effective as of January 1st. Memorial Hermann in Houston has also dropped Humana Medicare Advantage. They're out of network with, with that pair there. And then Baptist Health in Louisville, Kentucky, um, is now out of network with United Healthcare's Medicare Advantage plan with Centene's. Medicare Advantage plans there in the state, and then um, their medical group is out of network with Humana uh, Medicare Advantage plan. So that's about 270,000 people in that region alone affected by that by that contract negotiation. I will say, in my, you know, these these contract negotiations are almost always resolved the vast majority of the time. But in the meantime, in the in the months or sometimes even years where these where these things are being negotiated, you've got a lot of people affected that don't have access to to covered healthcare. Oftentimes, Medicare Advantage plans are HMO networks, so um, it has a big effect on people. And and um, we've you know we've spoken with a lot of hospital executives about their strategies moving forward for Medicare Advantage contracts. Is the sense that you still get from hospitals and health systems? Would you say it's predominantly or overwhelmingly negative towards the Medicare Advantage? What's the sense you get in the discussions you have? No, I don't. I don't think so at all. Um, at the end of the day, it's half of the uh, seniors in this country get their health coverage from Medicare Advantage. So it's it's unrealistic to think that the vast majority of hospitals or health systems in this country are, are shunning that program. Not at all. Um, I think individually, one on one, hospital executives are more likely nowadays to to be more um, to be. To, to critique the program, um, but I don't think it's um, possible for most systems to um, to drop all Medicare Advantage contracts. That, yeah, it's not realistic. No, no, the, 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 the question wasn't will they shun them entirely. Sure. It's more the issue of what are the, what are their attitudes towards them. What are you hearing their yeah. attitudes towards them? Is it sort of like a necessary evil at this point? Do they like them? Do they hate them? Or somewhere in between, and how do seniors feel about the Medicare Advantage plans? That I don't hear enough about yeah. how seniors actually feel about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I should mention a lot of health systems have their own Medicare Advantage plans, so or their own subsidiaries. So it's very financially profitable for a lot of systems. Um, the CFO of UNC Health in, in Chapel Hill, Will Bryant, told us 
um, that what they think is that they will expand partnerships with, with Medicare Advantage carriers that are performing well, that they have a good relationship with, and that um, you know they'll, they'll move forward with those that are partners and not with those that aren't. So they'll, they'll par down um, some of their Medicare Advantage contracts moving forward. And we did hear that from, from a few different systems at some of our most recent uh, in-person events. In terms of actual members themselves, it is a, it's a broadly politically popular program. Members on the whole have high satisfaction ratings with their Medicare Advantage plans. Um, both sides of the aisle are big proponents of, of these plans. Um, so in terms of the actual member population, it's, it is a very popular program. Fascinating. And thank you. That is informative and very, thank you very, very much. Jacob, tell us what else you're watching currently. I mean, you're talking about the Medicaid work requirements. I know I cut you off a little bit on that. Anything else that you're watching there? Nothing, nothing too major in terms of um, other policies. The, the Medicaid work requirements is is important because again we're in a presidential election year, and this beyond the this a lot of the discussions we've seen recently that I think takes up a lot of the air in the room in terms of national healthcare policies, the ACA, and and what Republican presidential candidates um, want to see with with that law. But again, this uh, around the country, Republican-controlled state legislatures are are trying to put Medicaid work requirements either on the ballot for voters to decide on, um, or they're trying to expand Medicaid in their state under the ACA. And this is a compromise uh, to include work requirements with their legislature. Um, and then I think just last thing to note on this is that Georgia is the only state with a Medicaid work requirement currently in place that went into effect last July. Um, so, you know, this is a very brand new policy and we're going to have to see how it, how it develops on, on each state level. Is the point that they're trying to get force people back to work, which is, I guess, fine and not a bad idea? Is it just politically signaling to their constituents we shouldn't be giving this welfare benefit to these lazy people? And, 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 I, and I'm not—that's not my perspective. I'm trying to understand the, the 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 political perspective on it. Or is it just we can get people more people off the rolls and save money? which doesn't really, at the end of the day, it doesn't seem like there's going to be that much savings to get people off the rolls for periods of time and tremendous administrative headaches. What is the underlying, what do people say about it as an underlying political motive that just people should have to work to get the benefits? Is that what they're, or, or try and work to get the benefits? That's the sort of core concept? I, I think that's probably what it boils down to, Scott. Uh, again, you know, this is state by state, uh, a lot of different politicians working on these different policies. Um, but it does seem, yeah, like you said, if uh, the, the core logic seems to be that if you want to receive Medicaid through the states, then you need to prove to the states that you are actively contributing um, to the economy in some other way. And so Georgia's um, requirement is that if you earn less than uh, $14,500 annually, with some exceptions, you need to be completing 80 hours of work, job training, or community service per month to receive the Medicaid coverage through the state. So yeah, I think you're, I think you're correct in, in that assessment. Got it. What a fascinating situation. I mean, and so many different judgments one can make on it. Cause on one hand, yes, people ultimately should be working somehow or another. On the other hand, is it really intended to be punitive or is it really intended to have a, a positive purpose? And it's very hard to judge, of course, and you can't look inside everybody's minds as to what they're really trying to accomplish with it. But what a fascinating sure, issue. Sure. And let's not forget, Scott, Medicaid redeterminations are going on right now in every state. They're dealing with that. So if you add work requirements and proving that, it's a whole other lift for every state program. 
Oh, yeah. No, we recognize, I think we probably recognize that the idea, well, it might sound like a popular idea among certain constituents. The actual administration of that idea seems brutal uh, in terms of administrative headaches and challenges and so forth. So, no, I, your point is very well taken on that. No question about it. Uh, Jacob Emerson, again, thank you for joining us today on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. Always a pleasure and, and always brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, Scott. It's so important for leaders at the top of organizations to keep learning, stay sharp, grow their networks. To help our audience better do this in a more simplified, personalized, and meaningful way, Becker's Healthcare has launched MyBHC. It's your trusted Becker's Healthcare experience and more with content, connections, events, and learning opportunities. Join the community free of charge at www.my.beckershospitalreview.com and we'll see you there. Mm-hmm.